Well, listeners, it is a new year, which means all these new chances to start fresh and ready for whatever challenges 2017 might bring. Now, we know that with that, you might be craving something a bit new to drive the decisions you make this year, you know, new sources of inspiration, perhaps, or new sources of advice and recommendations separate from what you read or listened to in 2016. Well, I'm proud to say that EdSearch has got your back on this one. So timed with the kickoff of 2017, which is right now, EdSurge is announcing a brand new spanking format for the EdSurge On Air podcast. And I am privileged to announce that we have a fabulous new host, Jeff Young. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, thanks, Mary Jo. I'm very happy to be here bringing a higher ed perspective to the show I just joined EdSurge a couple months ago. I was at the Chronicle of Higher Education, and I was doing a podcast there about higher education and the future of technology in higher ed. And here I'm going to do a conversation each, well, every other week, alternating with your talks with folks on the K-12 side. Yes, so that's right. So everybody, you will be getting equal doses of pre- and post-secondary interviews. And we're going to talk to the best and brightest from both K-12 and higher education. I'll be focusing on t- K-12, and then Jeff will be focusing on higher ed. And so with that, we are going to kick off this new EdSurge on Air podcast with, you guessed it, a higher education-themed interview. Jeff, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, I sat down with Richard Collada, who was in the Obama administration's education department and specifically in the Office of Ed Tech. So obviously, Trump's about to take office. People are very curious, concerned, whatever it is they're feeling as they think about what is going to come next. And so I thought it'd be good to sit down with someone who's been through working at the federal level in education technology policy in education and say what can be done, what could be done, and what what does the future uh, hold. So we'll be having that conversation right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. I'm sitting down with Richard Collada, the Chief Innovation Officer for the state of Rhode Island and former Director of Ed Tech for the U.S. Department of Education. Thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah, so um, we're at a, a time of of potential, well, great change, it seems like, um, with the government. <laughs> I've heard about that. <laughs> with the election recently. And, you know, there's certainly on a lot of people's mind, It's it's. I feel like it's called up this question of what, in, in the world of, of education tech, as we're looking at it, what... What will what really does government policy do, um, and where where is it really kind of played a role? And so, as somebody who has obviously spent a lot of time thinking about that in your former role mm-hmm. at the Ed Department, and really helping to shape a lot of innovative things, trying to you know putting out that ed, national ed tech policy, doing a lot of interesting things from code jams to you know trying to use that um, tool or lever of the of the government, the federal government to um, to shape things. I mean, how, how much does it matter? So certainly, the federal uh, level, there can be a, a huge amounts of innovation and both policy shaping, but also practice shaping. I mean, one of the things that we did on the team when, when I was there was really thinking about how do we actually uh, accelerate um, good practice beyond just creating policy, 
right? And so that's where we did things like um, data jams and hackathons and opening up data sets to bring in developers. And we uh, created these partnerships with the developer community. We had a whole series of challenges that we offered out to to schools. We had um, you know the, ple- the future ready pledge. We had a kind of a whole series of ways of just engaging the community around solving tough problems in the space. But I think one of the things that is uh, fairly obvious in this coming administration uh, is that uh, that drive to really be the center of innovation, certainly at the Department of Ed, is probably not going to be the same as it was in the past. I think that's pretty clear to say. Uh, that's not making any sort of political statement. It's just that it's pretty obvious that the policy will largely be pass money through to the states, right? It will not be to, to sort of be the innovation hub at the federal level, as it, I think, has been for you know the last eight years. Um, some people are sort of see this in a kind of gloom and doom way. I actually think there's some excitement about it. It's going to be a very new model. But what it's going to do is it's going to push the innovation down to the states uh, and other organizations that are that are interested and involved in taking up these issues. And uh, for states that are ready to do that, they will be in a great position to sort of become these centers of innovation, these places where we can really uh, build out and try out uh, new approaches and tackle tough problems and, and frankly use some of the playbook that we helped create at the federal level that we sort of tested and tried is now available for states to pick up. Um, and, and so in that way, I think it's pretty exciting. It's a new approach, but it's a way to continue innovation. It will just happen at a different level. And I think it will engage uh, people who in some cases may have uh, you know, been taking it a little bit easy for the last uh, four to eight years, right? That now have to kick in and really bring their value to the table because if it's not coming from them, who will it come from? I mean, in a way, it sounds like a positive spin on that there's a kind of a gap that's created, a void now, where there was all this activity at the federal level and now you're saying it wouldn't... We're, we're speculating, but I think it's fair to say based on what we've seen from Sure. The, I mean, it depends on who you ask. I would say it's a gap. People who, you know, <laughs> perhaps voted for uh, the for President Trump would say that was, you know, what was intentional, right? So, so again, I, I try to stay out of the uh, what's right and what's wrong. I don't know that there's a moral high ground on this one. I just think the reality is we, we are going to have to look for other people and other places to step up and provide that innovation uh, that perhaps was being provided at the federal level before. I'm curious, can you say a a kind of anecdotal lesson learned from your time at the Ed Department? Um, Something where, you know, I mean, because obviously this is the story of policy in general, right? There's like well-meaning things that go on and then, you know, some work and some don't. Yeah. Even with the best of intentions. Is there something that you can kind of say, like, here's something we learned maybe to pass on to the to future policymakers on the state or federal level. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things that we learned very clearly uh, was, you know, there's that old saying, the smartest people, no matter who you are, the smartest people work for someone else. (laughs) And so our ability to tap in to really smart people to be involved in the process uh, is is probably the most important lesson that I, I took away. And and there's a whole bunch of ways to do that, right? Uh, one of the things that we did, uh, we set up a series of uh, fellowships where we actually brought in uh, teachers, tech directors, a superintendent at one point, students to come in and work on the team uh, at the Office of Ed Tech, right? And they were actually part of the team and they helped develop the National Ed Tech Plan. They helped roll out all of the products that we created uh, were of higher quality because we had real live breathing teachers and superintendents as part of our team. 
Um, that's critical, tapping in. There's other ways to do it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other ways that we did it were through these challenges and prizes where we'd set out, uh, you know, here's a, a thorny uh, problem that we're trying to deal with and, you know, it's a challenge. Come to us with your best ideas. And so we were able to really crowdsource a lot of those ideas. And, and I think the other thing is um, that you keep a, a right balance of the feedback that you're hearing. So we, one of the things that I've done, I, we, I've continued to do this, but we started this at the when I was at the Department of Ed, was... Um, uh, we control uh, people who are, if we had an event, um, the admission to the event by role type. Mm. So we'd open, we'd have sort of five simultaneous events that were the same title at the same day in the same location, uh, but they were five separate registrations, if that makes any sense. So one would be developers, teachers, policymakers, uh, you know, whoever else we had, you know, university faculty. And in order to add one more to the developer side, we have to have one more to the teacher, you know, faculty member, policymaker side. And so we sort of very purposely kept this diverse mix. And even we were very thoughtful, um, even at where we sit people when they come down. So at tables, we would have that mix purposely. Like uh, a well-planned wedding. Well, I know. Isn't that, I could be a wedding planner. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but the conversation, you know, people would walk away. And it was sort of trend. We didn't make a big deal about it. People didn't know. Like, oh, I just had this awesome conversation. Why did that happen? You know, why was that such a great conversation? Well, it was because we spent a lot of time figuring out how to make sure people were talking to people that they don't normally talk to. And that's a big problem in education. We spend a lot of time talking to people who think like us, who do similar jobs as us. And, hmm. and I think that's part of why innovation is so slow hmm. uh, in education, because we don't have these relationships of trust already built with people doing things different than us in the same space. I mean, that is... Uh, one of those things that I see, you know, at events like this, we're sitting at Reimagine Education today in Philadelphia at UPenn. Um, but a lot of times, you know, the people here are, they're preaching to the choir, that's the cliche, but it's its more than that. It's like the faculty who would be a, a necessary stakeholder for any change are kind of not here. There's right. just not a lot of people wearing a professor title at this event, and that's not to criticize this event. There's like every one of these events that, that, that you see. And it, it, meanwhile, there are faculty events where people like this are being trashed. So it, it seems like your tables were, were set that way, but it does seem like there's this bigger issue around who's, who's chatting with each other. It's a bigger <laughs> issue. And, there's an, and then there's another problem with that too, which is we get a bunch of people together, let's say, you know, an event like this, we have a bunch of sort of faculty member people, and then we talk about big system level change, mm. which they don't have mm. the ability to affect necessarily. Right. And so That's what not happens, and this happens across, you could give any other example of that. And so I think one of these, these things that I see over and over again in education is we come together and we talk about, you know, how I, I call it boiling the ocean. You know, I work in Rhode mm. Island, so we use the ocean metaphors, right? Boil the ocean. We say, we want to come up with this new plan that's going to like change life for every student everywhere and make everything better. And then we go to do it and it's, we don't have the ability to make that change happen. And then we sort of give up and we say, ah, see, nothing ever changes in education. Uh, Whereas I think we need to be much better in Mm -hmm. education about this idea of, of an MVP, a minimally viable product, right? What is the smallest thing that we can do that I actually have the ability to control and make change around? And use that as a step to then take on a bigger challenge. So I, I love it's it's a funny thing to say, but one of the, the the piece of advice that I give everywhere is don't think so big, right? I mean, you can think big, but when you go to act, take your action, what's the smallest step you can take and actually do it, mm-hmm. as opposed to you know ponder about how the world could be totally different with education and then never be able to move forward. And I think we are not good at taking bite-sized chunks in education. And if we could get better at it, I think we would actually innovate much faster. You know, there was this Ryan Craig piece that ran just the other day that talked about the minimum viable project, which yeah. is something borrowed from the Silicon Valley lexicon. Right. And a lot of pushback I mm. saw on the comments um, of 
you know, oh my gosh, this guy. I mean, he is a messenger, is a venture capitalist who stands to gain from companies um, that that kind of can come in and do that. But I'm curious, like what, there is this reaction to business speak within the academy. And I just wonder um, what what you would say to people who might say, well, the minimum viable product, that's fine for product. But don't talk about education that way because you're already, you've changed the rhetoric, you've moved it over to something where it shouldn't be. So I actually sort of vehemently disagree with not looking at uh, ideas that work in other industries and applying them back. Mm. I do have a problem if we're only looking at the business in, you know, business mm. community or Silicon Valley. But I think there's actually huge value in looking at concepts that have worked well in other industries. Mm. I think there's a ton that education can learn from looking at how healthcare is using data, for example, good and bad. But man, we would be it would be crazy for us not to be watching what's happening with how data is being used to transform healthcare. Like Likewise, I think when it comes to things like, uh, you know, how one of the things that Silicon Valley is good at, for better or worse, is quickly iterating and coming up with new innovations, right? If they are stagnant, the natural sort of market forces in that industry, you you just are wiped out. It's a luxury that higher ed sort of can afford that uh, the business, you know, the Silicon Valley community can't. And because of that, they've really learned some great ways to to innovate quickly. And, And we'd just be crazy not to learn from that. Doesn't mean we have to take everything. It doesn't mean we have to only, you know, run higher ed institutions just like businesses. But I do think there's value in saying, uh, you know, seeing some fairly quick result from what we're doing, testing and trying and not getting stuck in endless uh, sort of strategic planning that may last for, you know, five, six, seven years before anybody actually sees the value out of those plans. Um, that's that's not good either. And I and I think the, um, the, the necessity for higher ed to innovate faster is uh, is increasing. It was it was there was no competition from non traditional uh, players for ever. Right, that's changing right. very quickly, and so you're going to have institutions that either figure out how to innovate faster uh, or who go away. And, and I don't I don't you know mean that to just sort of be uh, uh, dramatic, but but it really is it really is the case because there are now options, very good options other than traditional institutions. Um, I, what I'm very excited about is the traditional institutions that I know and some that I've been working with that are moving very quickly to learn how to innovate faster and to address some long-standing systemic changes that are really problematic for students. And those that do are going to be in a great place and do some really awesome things moving forward. No, I understand one of your titles, this was in an EdSurge piece, um, was Chief Impatience Officer, because <laughs> yeah. you, you've been in the, you have been in the company side of the house yeah. at, in, at various points in your career. Um, tell me about that. What is, you know, what, what was, that was actually on your business card? It literally was on my business card. Chief Impatience Officer. And what company was that? So it was a company called Third Rail Games. We mm-hmm. created uh, uh, games, educational games. And, I love it. Uh, it was it was uh, great. It actually says a lot about me. If you if you know me, I am um, very uh, I'm not very tolerant of the speed at which we move in education and a lot of things because so much is at stake, right? Like we don't have the luxury to just take our time when hundreds of thousands of students are being left out of opportunities that are critical for their future. We don't have the luxury of moving slowly when we have huge societal needs that can only be solved through better learning opportunities, right? Mm. So so my role, and, and I talk about, I, I talk about, you know, thoughtful impatience. So it doesn't mean just randomly run down the street, but there are approaches that you can use to be sort of thoughtfully impatient, which is like, uh, you know, yes, we could take six weeks in order to do this, but could we do the same thing in two? 
<laughs> right? Like literally asking that question sometimes is enough to, to get us moving. Um, that is definitely at odds with the academic culture uh, that I've been is. covering for a while. Sure, here. sure. And it's, I think it's one of those <laughs> things that it's interesting. You know, there, there are times, even when I worked in higher ed, we'd say, great, this is a good idea. Let's get back. Let's meet again. How about we meet again next month? And, and I would be the one in the room saying, well, why don't we meet on Friday? Right, like take the momentum. Is wh- that the idea? Why wait? Why wait four weeks to come back? Like, like I think there's just this urgency that we um, uh, that doesn't persist in the higher ed community the way that I really think it has to because of the needs that exist in the community. So where does this come from? I mean, how did you get into ed tech? In a nutshell, you know, <laughs> wow. How do I do the quick version of it? I think it really started. I was a, a high school Spanish teacher. And I um, remember there was a time where I was I was trying to teach a concept about um, uh, the the um, dirty wars in Argentina, sort of a really bad part of the, the history where government was sort of oppressing the um, population. And uh, anyway, there I was teaching it in this very sort of dry way out of this textbook and looking at a class of ninth graders who could care less what I was saying. And I had this moment. I remember thinking. This deserves more than what I'm giving it. This deserves more than reading a couple paragraphs out of a boring text. And so I went and I sort of searched on the internet there and uh, found that they just released pictures of all of the people who had been captured in these uh, uh, camps, these sort of concentration camps that they created. And so I took them and I set them to music uh, with against a song by Sting, uh, which was written about this this period in time. Right. Sure. Um, and so. Uh, I went and showed it to my class with these pictures, the music, and some facts that I pulled from our text and, and sort of moved it in there and just played this video for them. And it started one of the most uh, powerful discussions we'd ever had that year. I mean, I looked back and saw like the football player in the back row who usually didn't even pick his head up with tears coming down his eyes. So uh, I realized right there that there was some magic in that. And that leverage we really, we, yes, and that we really needed to start. I needed to start thinking about if that if that's what I could do with a couple nights throwing some music and uh, pictures together. How could this really become transformational in my teaching practice? And that's what kind of led me down this path. And um, and then you know the next step I took was well, if it was powerful for me. What if I ask students to be doing that? And how do we use these tools to enable them to be taking control of their learning in new ways? And, and you know, from there, I just sort of became a snowball, right? And learning uh, all kinds of ways that we could use this in, in new, new, new forms to improve education. Now, you mentioned, going back to your current role at the um, at state of Rhode Island. Yeah. So you're chief innovation officer. You mentioned that policy-wise, states might be kind of coming into to a more uh, kind of front and center. Yeah. In the, in the new administration, potentially in the new landscape. What kind of things are you looking to do in, in Rhode Island? What is some of the, what's, what's one kind of thing that you're excited about running with that you were probably already working on, you know, before the election we're talking about here, but yeah. uh, what, what kind of state level um, dream do you have? One of the things we looked at in our higher ed uh, community there was there were, were students were just uh, really struggling with the cost of textbooks. Textbook costs have increased over 1,000% over the last 30 years. Hmm. And I would love somebody to come and, uh, you know, make the claim that the value of textbooks have gone up by over a thousand percent in that same time. I don't think they have. Uh, But but regardless of that, the cost is just unbearable for a lot of students, especially students who are sometimes really struggling and working part-time jobs or sometimes full-time jobs in order to go to school. And it looks like some surveys show they just don't buy them anymore. And often not not everybody. And some are very frustrated because some faculty will, you know, choose at Rhode Island College, for example, we talk to students that are paying two, three hundred dollars for textbooks and sometimes they barely even get open. 
Mm. It's like so, the professor's not assigning them as they much. They don't even assign it that much. And, and often the faculty members, the professors, don't even know how much the textbook costs, right? Uh, and I'll own that. When I was teaching, I never knew the cost of the textbook. We chose a textbook. I didn't realize I was And making... it was culturally what you did. Oh, sure. In fact, for accreditation, you actually have to have some textbooks for some so places. So the interesting thing is you don't have to have commercial licensed textbooks. So one of the things that we are doing and in Rhode Island is we created a challenge. And we challenged all of our higher ed institutions to transition from commercial licensed textbooks to open licensed textbooks. We did a pilot of this with one class at Rhode Island College, one class, Bio 108. And that one class, making that one transition, we saved $100,000 for students this year. That's a lot of money. One class. One class, and that's real money. And so the governor has made a challenge to save $5 million for students in the Rhode Island higher ed institutions by transitioning from commercial to open licensed textbooks. Uh, We have every one of our higher ed institutions that signed on to that that, uh, pledge, that challenge. Which is a big deal. I don't think any other state has done that. Um, so that's one of the ways that we're looking at what's a non-traditional approach to tackle a rising college costs. Well, one of them is we can cut off thousands of dollars right off the bat just by lowering the cost of textbooks. So that's one thing. Um, other things that we're looking at are, uh, you know, how are we thinking about using um, uh, scholarships? Scholarships are interesting. We give scholarships out at the sort of least useful time mm. uh, if we're talking about using them for a motivator for success, right? So we give scholarships out when students have uh, already been accepted to the institution. Well, at that point, they're already accepted. Yes, I mean, it's very helpful that they get the scholarship, but they've yeah. already been accepted. So it's not a motivator for you to get into school. What if instead we started giving scholarships out uh, incrementally starting when students were freshmen in high school, right? And as they, as they demonstrated progress, that for every A you get on a math test, you get 100 bucks deposited into your account. And then by the end of your, your, your school, when you graduate from high school, you can choose these colleges that you would go to based on how much money you've accrued. Same amount of money. We're just saying, can we push it back? That sounds like a, a chipping away at a big expense. But I, I see what you mean. I, I see your point. It, so same, same cost. We're not giving any more money. We're just saying distribute it out over uh-huh. time. I see. Right? So just it's money that was already going. It's, it's already the money that we would give you in a scholarship. I see. But we're just going to say you get it in pieces over time so that you can watch it build and you actually have an incentive when you're getting you know frustrated and thinking maybe it's not worth it. But you say, well, look, I'm building up. I already have half my college tuition for this particular institution paid for. So we're piloting that in a couple institutions in Rhode Island. Well, it certainly seems like your impatience is showing by, by doing a lot of things. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be watching what goes on there. Glad to. Thanks for the, the time. You've been listening to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young, with help from Mary Jo Matta. Again, this is the first episode of our new format, so tell us how we did. Send comments to feedback at edsurge.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please leave a rating or tell a friend or colleague. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.